this week on the Backtable Podcast. My personal belief is that you should have four levels of mentorship. You should have one senior medical student, either at your own medical school or at another medical school. And that role would be like answering the specific program types of questions, like, you know, what's happening that previous year, like, you know, how did the virtual process go? For me to talk about the virtual process, I can talk about it on the different end as like the evaluator side now. But again, I haven't gone through it. The second should be a resident because the resident can kind of tell you like the life and day of what's going to be expected for your next five or six years of residency, right? What is like being an interventional radiologist on the resident side like? You should have a young attending and then a senior attending. And by having those four, I feel like you'll get a appropriate insight of the field and then what it was like and where it's heading. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. For today's topic, I have with me Dr. Neil Jane from MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Neil's a fourth-year IRDR resident. Fourth year, is that correct, Neil? That is correct. PGY4. Nice. And today we're going to be talking about matching into IR and the changes to that application process. Neil, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. All right. So start us out. So I already introduced you. You're at Georgetown, fourth year, but tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up in the IRDR program, and uh, why you chose IR. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in New Jersey. I left Jersey, went to uh, undergraduate at Boston University where I met my wife. We just got married two weeks ago. And uh, before medical school, I spent a year teaching neuroanatomy. So initially, I thought I was going to go into neurosurgery when I entered medical school, maybe like most medical students. Yeah, and, which would be a terrible idea. Right. <laughs> right. Good choice. Knew, yeah, right. If they knew about IR beforehand. But that was like my initial, uh, my initial uh, frame of mind uh, entering medical school. And then I luckily was paired up with a mentor at a children's hospital of uh, Philadelphia since that was right in our backyard about 25 minutes away. And I discovered, I've, initially I thought I was shadowing a radiologist, maybe like, you know, maybe a neuroradiologist. And it happened to be an interventional radiologist. And I was like, what is this? It was brought into like a, a room with like all these gadgets and wires that they're playing video games. Like... It, it was it was mind blowing, and I and I feel like a, a lot of uh, medical students may have like this kind of like realization that wow, there's like a specialty that is like on the cutting edge of uh, medicine, and that lets you do so many of these different procedures to treat a various uh, like head to toe um, diseases. 
So from then on, again, I was very lucky. I found out during my M1 year. So that was just random luck that you got paired up with an IR doc? Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Everything about that was serendipitous and I cannot be more grateful. (laughs) But yeah, since then, I mean, I have absolutely loved everything about IR. When I actually entered medicine, I remember wanting to have like a very diversified career in medicine. I didn't, obviously I wanted to be a clinician. That was, you know, the most uh, rewarding fact of of medicine. But then I also wanted to like be on the entrepreneurial side. I wanted, I love the research and innovation side of medicine. I started to like during my uh, surgery rotations, I was like, wow, I actually love doing procedures too. What specialty can combine all these four or five factors together? And honestly, it's interventional radiology. So uh, again, I had the best pick and I lucked out. (laughs) Nice. So when did you have to lock in on interventional radiology? Like it, it would, like for med students going through now, like what's like kind of the, the point of no return where you have to say, all right, I'm doing IR, I'm doing surgery, I'm doing whatever. Like, I just feel like people who decide earlier are kind of at an advantage because they can kind of start like working their resume to that effect. But like really, when's like the, the last moment where you can decide like, bouncing between IR or, you know, internal medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it honestly depends on what your portfolio looks like beforehand, right? I think you can theoretically, I know many of my colleagues that have matched into IR that decided during their M3 year and sometimes as late as December of their M3 year, they were all, they didn't get uh, introduced into interventional radiology like I did during my M1 year. But a lot of them had additional background in innovation, had an MBA or went to better medical schools or had uh, greater um, or had more research or had strong home programs. And when you put all those other factors together, it it does matter because if you frankly have a medical student that finds out during their M3 year, they'll probably be late to being involved in SIR, being late to... Uh, doing IR-related research, um, you know, kind of ma- establishing a, l- a lot of those relationships, which are so essential in such a small, close-knit community that, you know, it'll be slightly difficult. And that by no means this doesn't mean you can't do IR. It's just be, it will be difficult to match into that integrated spot. Gotcha. All right. So that's actually a good segue, though. Let's talk about the different ways, like, you go from med student to IR physician or IR resident or whatever. So I'll just say like the traditional pathway, which is what I had done um, a thousand years ago, was intern year, DR residency, one year IR fellowship. So that's completely gone now. Like in 2020, that was the last class that would have been, I think that was the last class that would have been graduating under that kind of like structure, right? Am I right about that? Yep. Okay. All right. So what are the ways now that people can actually get into, I guess, either IR, DR or interventional radiology? Sure. So there's three main pathways. I like to say the sexiest way that most medical students think about it is the integrated interventional radiology pathway. And how I think the best way to actually think about this is um, understanding that pretty much however you cut it, you need two years of interventional radiology training. So the integrated pathway requires one year of intern year, either that surgery, a transitional year, or medicine. And then you have three years of diagnostic training. And at that same program, you'll have two years of 
the interventional radi- uh, radiology program uh, training, all built in that one program. But it may not be necessarily like three years of diagnostics, two years of IR. Like you can have that IR spaced out and then maybe a year at the end or it's all like kind of blended in, right? Somewhat, yes. So during at least, so I can talk about my experiences at Georgetown where uh, we have uh, during our intern year, we get two months of interventional radiology rotations. And then we get just like every diagnostic resident, we get one month for our diagnostic years for our one, our two, and our three years. But technically, by my R3 years, I've had five months of IR training, which is probably equivalent to someone who's like a PGY5. So that, like, your diagnostic training is very similar to your counterparts in diagnostic radiology when it comes to at least, like, your IR rotations. But where it's very beneficial is where you actually get, like... Uh, involved in like IR research. We have journal clubs. We have all these IR focused educational uh, topics in service, uh, you know, playing with different equipment, knowing the faculty. So I think that's where it's a little bit different. The second pathway is something called ESIR, early specialization in interventional radiology, where you match into a diagnostic radiology program. However, these programs are in a way, they're specialized in uh, providing at least one year of training where you need to get 500 procedures. And pretty much what that allows you to do is during like your R4 year where you've already passed boards, you know, uh, most programs have that flexibility of uh, what you can actually kind of what rotations you can take during that year. And yeah, like the, the quote unquote mini fellowship thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Yep. So that will just be your IR year. And then what you can do after that year, right? Because now you have that one year of intern year, three years of diagnostic, one year of that ESIR. You still have to do one more year of interventional radiology. And that can either go to, either you can stay at that program if they are have that independent spot, which I'll talk about next. Or if they don't have that one year like independent residency spot, uh, you have to apply uh, elsewhere for it. And then that brings me to the last pathway, which is- Hold on. When do you when do you apply and when do you match into it? So when you're in the DR program, that's when you apply and match. Like so, you go through your original match process, you match into DR, and then you get into the independent IR residency. Correct. Yep. You match into diagnostic radiology. Often, uh, the IR program directors will ask, like, "Hey, is anyone interested in radio in IR?" And that way, they can fill their two spots or once whatever spots they have. But let's say if your program doesn't have that, then so what do you do if you match in diagnostic radiology and you realize, hey, I want to do interventional radiology and your program doesn't have an ESIR spot or if they do, but sometimes there's just like a full saturation of your class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So then the last option is doing a two-year independent radiology residency. And that's where you've done one year of residency of intern year and then four years of diagnostic, and now you have to do two years of independent radiology or IR uh, residency at a different institution. And you just apply just like another ERAS position. Okay. In that situation, in the final situation that you just described, one of the big differences, I guess, you're going for seven years total rather than six? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So between those three, you kind of said like, you know, the, the quote unquote sexiest one was the integrated IRDR residency. They each seem like they have pluses and minuses to me. So what's like, will you kind of run through those a little bit, like in broad strokes, like what are the pluses and minuses of each 
way of getting into IR. I mean, some some of it may be a force of nature that just just what's available to you. But you know, if you have your options open, like what are some of the pluses and minuses? Absolutely. I, I mean, when I say it's sexy, uh, right, right, m- maybe, yeah, exactly. So let me talk about the pros of the integrated process. You never have to match again, right? The next time, what I have to think about is a job, which honestly is for me, very comforting <laughs> that I don't have to go through another match cycle or another like, hey, let me, I have to beef up these stats for so-and-so or beef up my application. Like now, uh, like when I match, I am fully in the diagnostic and interventional radiology mindset, trying to be the best DRIR resident I can be. And nothing needs to be like, hey, I'm doing research for this purpose. I'm doing research that I like and that I want to, you know, kind of get out in the world or, or pretty much I'm not beefing up my application for a specific reason. The downside of the integrated pathway though is sometimes like you, you have to think about it that you're here for five or six years. If it's categorical, then it's six years, right? So are you okay of um, staying at that location for six years? Are you okay, you know, staying at that program for six years, right? And one thing, what I really loved about my away rotations as a medical student was that I got to see how interventional radiologists operated at all different specialties, uh, or I'm sorry, throughout all different hospitals. And interventional radiologists, obviously they're trained at, at different places, but each interventional radiologist, even at that own like program, has their own way of doing procedures. And some institutions are more focused on like lymphatics or venous disease, you know, uh, IO. So now you're learning all these different topics that a specific program specializes in. But what happens if your program, like you're interested in, let's say, peripheral arterial disease is a hot topic. How about if your program doesn't do that or uh, if they don't do interventional oncology? So then, and if that's something you would like to build in your practice, where do you get that? So doing the ESI, uh, ESIR training, gives you that flexibility, right? You do one year the, uh, at your home institution, and then that other year, you get to go travel and go to additional programs that may actually have a whole different skill set, whole different uh, service line that you can actually learn and build uh, other uh, different technical skills that you may not otherwise have had the opportunity to do so. Yeah, and sometimes... When you're at one program long enough, like the the home institution, like the mothership, like there sometimes it's just like a way of doing something like a port. Like even though there's like a lots of different faculty, sometimes like everyone kind of molds together to do one port. And like, you know, the institution picks one product because of cost or whatever. And then all of a sudden you go to somewhere else. And like, so that, that was me. Like, so I did Vanderbilt residency, Georgetown IR. Right. Like the Georgetown way was certainly different from the Vanderbilt way. Like, and you know, I, I can't like that was back in the day when like I wasn't getting a whole lot of training as an IR person in residency, but still there's some things I picked up on that were very different. And so I, I don't know, like I think each one has its own own way of being advantageous. And sometimes it's just fun to go see two different cities, right? Like yeah, Nashville and DC, two very cool spots. <laughs> um, but what about the what about the other way? The um, the independent, I guess it's the independent IR residency where you do DR for four years and two IR, two years of IR training at the end. Those programs, like the two years, is it full two clinical years or is it sometimes like research is built in? Can vary by program. Yeah, that varies by program. So okay. it's going to be, I know uh, Georgetown, um, our program's done a great job of 
building in ICU training, hepatology, service line, oncology. So we're spending time on all these different services that are, you know, referring to us. So we have, I think, about five to six months within that two-year program to do, to incorporate other non-IR related rotations. Okay. Are those, but those rotations can vary from program to program. Like some places Correct. may go vascular surgery, some people, so it can, it can be all over the map. Correct. Mm-hmm. Which can also lead to some interesting differentiating factors between program to program. All right. So let's talk about changes to the application process. The first thing I have on my list, but I'll open it up to you. I have virtual interviews new since COVID, right? So, I mean, I like to usually talk about like how the landscape of applying into the integrated IR DR residency program has drastically changed since 2016. I think bringing it back to what it was and where it's now, it's uh, extremely important. So initially applicants uh, had to learn how to navigate the competitive nature of applying into uh, the integrated IR DR program, which often led to applying both IR and DR programs. And there were years where like the match rate had dipped to an outstandingly low 65%, uh, which for medical students is a extremely chilling statistic for a desired specialty. Two out of three. Ouch. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then as years passed, the shiny object uh, syndrome dissolved. The match rates began to slightly normalize. More research uh, on the application cycle emerged on matching into IR. And that like mentioning that you started thinking of important factors that uh, were required to match into IR, such as away rotations, research, board scores, letter of recommendations. And then by 2020, I felt like, uh, and approximately four years later, I felt that there was somewhat an algorithm uh, into matching into interventional radiology. And it felt like most students had finally cracked the code. All right. So the formula is out there. Got it. Yeah. Well, then COVID happened, uh, which completely changed the game of applying and matching into interventional radiology. Yeah, we could start with the virtual process. So, right, my uh, when you applied to interventional radiology, when I applied to interventional radiology, whether it was the fellowship back then or the integrated spot, it was in person. You got to meet, uh, you get to meet your program directors, the faculty, the residents, fellows, and that was so imperative to me to at least evaluating a program, but also just getting the non-clinical, non-statistical feel for the program, right? You get to value the city. Right. Exactly. The people there. And again, I I love being in Georgetown, Ohio. Like one thing which I didn't consider when I was applying was the residents, but I think I just, like, it just felt, it just like became so lucky uh, because I think the residents is what, uh, makes this program one of the best programs, in my opinion. I'm not being biased, I promise. <laughs> sure, right, right. gotcha. <laughs> but uh, it, it's it is so important. Um, but now, like you know, students uh, don't get that. It's hard to kind of demonstrate that residency camaraderie over the internet, right? So this program has had several renditions uh, since 2020. Most importantly, last year uh, in the 22-23 cycle, there was a new feature called the signaling feature, uh, which was introduced into the application process. Process. There's a geographic preference uh, as well as a program-specific signal. So this allows students to quote-unquote signal programs and demonstrate to program directors that they are highly considering these specific programs and or regions for residency. So today, I believe uh, 21 specialties have this feature. 
not to make this complicated process even more complex, uh, this upcoming year in the 23-24 cycle, they've delineated these program-specific signals into gold stars and silver star tokens. So gold means you're extremely interested in this program and silver is like highly interested, right? And there's uh, six or so specialties that are using this feature and a total of six gold and uh, six silver tokens for both the integrated IR, uh, DR, and the DR program. So you have 12 matching into radiology. Okay. So you have six gold stars and six silver stars to give out to indicate preference. Correct. But now you see where like the problem with this is, right? Because this, now this is like gamesmanship. Yeah. I mean, there's always been a certain amount of gamesmanship to the whole process. It was just not as formalized. And so, yeah. So talk about the gamesmanship and, and kind of what this means for, I mean, you know, every, everyone wants to maximize their chances. That's what we're here to right. talk about. Yep. Yeah. So programs ideally want to have a 100% match rate with students who want to be there, right? Applicants want to match into IR, some of who don't have a preference at all uh, for location or at times like, you know, even like that actual program itself. So at times you can play the system. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't, like you need to strategize on how you're communicating with programs and demonstrating interest. But what happens when you're like, hey, I want to match at this specific program in the West Coast. But ideally, I want to stay on the East Coast, but I really like this program, right? So do you star this program in the West Coast, but then put a geographic preference of the East Coast? In your mind, you're like, yeah, I think that makes sense because like, you know, I'm telling them like, this is where I want to go. On the program side, they're looking at this like, hey, he doesn't even want to come to our, to like the West Coast at all. He is, he has like the South Atlantic as their preference. So that often is a red flag. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I've, I've actually had the opportunity to talk to several program directors and this was the common theme. Okay. And again, this is an N of like four, five program directors, but that was often like a red flag. Like, why are you not pro, like, why are you not signaling our region? You're starring our program, but not signaling the region. So do you really want to come here? Residency's hard enough. If you're saying you have all this family support back there, but you're signaling our program, right? And then this whole geographic preference, they're so wide range. Like it's from the South Atlantic is from Washington, D.C. to Florida. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is pretty broad. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. It's, okay. the system is flawed. This is like preposterous. Sure, sure, right? sure, I'd rather sure. go to Philadelphia than go to Florida personally, because since my family's in New Jersey. So right. how do you play this game Okay. Do you do you have to select your location as a preference? Like, can you can you leave some of this empty? Yes, you can. Okay. So okay. All right. For applicants who are uh, applying to match now, that's what I would say. If you're going to apply broadly, right, and or if there's specific programs you absolutely want to go to, and they're varied across the United States, do not pick a preference as far as location goes. Yeah, geographic preference. Got it. Yeah. Um, you can star however you like. So then with the starring, I, I personally uh, believe that you shouldn't have, I don't think they should, should have separated the gold and silver yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Silver is like, I mean, it's, it's like, automatically awarding like the second place. Like, yeah, exactly. Not even, sec- not even second place, really seventh place. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do in that circumstance, right? Like as a program director, you're evaluating all these students, right? Well, do you want the person who definitely wants to come here or 
like, you know, wants to come here, but not a gold star. What happens if there's seven programs within a geographic area like New York City and Philadelphia or so you have more than like six programs within that range? Like this one program get a silver star and you're going to be like, hey, actually this person gets, you know, doesn't get an interview. So all this is pre-interview, right? Okay. So yeah, yeah. this is just getting your foot in the door. But I believe all this has kind of made the waters a little bit more muddier. So, is there a general consensus, or even if you just want to weigh in on your personal opinion, like are silver stars worth giving out? Do you get? I mean, you have twelve of these things to give out. Give out every one of them. Like, I mean, it seems like there's no real disadvantage to giving out a gold, especially if it's a, a program that you really care about, whether it's one through six. But like, I guess it's the silvers that to me are the muddy water. Yeah, I, I would still give them out. Okay. Because you have these 12 tokens, right? Even if there's going to be times where a program may not get all gold stars, right? So they're going to go next to the silver stars. Sure, and, yeah. Um, at times they might say, and again, I, I think this is where like, the holistic review of the applicant like you know, comes into play, right? If you know that so-and-so student went to like a geographic area for medical school residency uh, or I'm sorry, medical school undergrad has family around there, they gave a silver star. I'm sure you'll like think about it, but if they have a geographic preference as well, which is happens to be in your program, again, it's I think you have to have that holistic review of that applicant. So having no star, I think, like it would be disadvantageous. I'll also say, like having been on the other side of it um, for residency and a little bit in fellowship, although I don't remember them including us all that much on the process, but I was very involved in um, my last year in residency. I would say I was surprised by how little thought we put into some things and how much thought we put into other things. And so, I mean, of course, I wasn't there for the the golds like this, the new format. But as much as like you can dig into like the minutia, like as the applicant, sometimes like the programs, like it's kind of a numbers game. Like you want to if you want to ma- match like four spots or eight spots or however many, they know they have to interview like fifty people. You can't just interview like all the gold stars, regional preferences, studs, wonderful students. I mean, you have to you have to just get to a certain number of interviews to know you're going to fill your seat. And like, I think a lot of programs know their algorithm. Like to fill one seat, we have to interview five people or 10 people or whatever. Right, exactly. So it just comes down to that 100% match rate, whatever they can do to maximize that and then get the best applicants possible. Um, and each program has their own specific criteria, whether it may be research, involvement in SIR, away rotations. But I think all these regarding like gold stars, silver stars, even like step scores, which now have become at least step one to pass fail, those will just kind of get you through that first initial stage, get like that foot in the door. And then the rest is the commercial interview and everything outside your letters or okay. racks. Well, Kit, actually, you mentioned it and I did want to talk about it. Can we talk a little bit about away rotations? Sure. So they were gone, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, or were severely restricted, but now away rotations are back in full force. Programs can get, a, or depending on where you come from, you may get one, maybe two. I don't know of any places I get three, but maybe. Can you talk about away rotations and whether you should or should not do them? Sure. So uh, I'll start with how I did four away rotations. Definitely, Holy cow. Right. <laughs> Definitely not necessary, um, but it was. I was a little bit insecure about my application at that time. And... Better insecure than over-secure. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't say that that's 
that's I can't say that's flawed. I mean, four may be overkill, but it's also can be a good time. I mean, like if you go to four different cool cities, see a couple of cool programs, meet very nice people. I absolutely loved it. And it's it's funny because I still talk to a lot of the faculty from some of those places and I often see them through um, part of the New Jersey IR symposium, the society that we created as a medical as medical students. But now it's kind of it's growing, and we always, when we're doing our symposiums, we have um, these faculty come back, and their faculties from or their uh, yeah faculty from places that I've rotated at, and it, it's great because like I, at each institution, I learned something different, and they would have a different service lines, so I, I would just learn way different ways to manage people with different procedures that I never thought we could do. So that was great. But yeah, the, regarding the res- resurrection of these um, away rotations. So I think the first thing you have to evaluate is, A, do you have a home program or not? Because if you have a home program and it, if it's strong in what the IR society as a whole considers a good clinical program, right? You may not need to do many aways because you'll get good letters and that's what you're hoping for. You'll get good exposure. You'll get good understanding of how to manage the back table. No pun intended. Yeah, man. Nice (laughs) drop in. I like that. (laughs) So that's uh, extremely important. Um, But let's say if you don't have that, and I didn't have that. So I um, I didn't have a home program that had a home uh, IR, like, you know, focused uh, interest group. That was something I had to create by myself. And then I had to reach outwards to surrounding cities or programs in cities that could give me that mentorship. And hence, that's why I did so many aways because A, I wanted to get good letters. I wanted to get good exposure. I wanted to understand more about IR. Granted, like being part of SIR for so long and uh, being able to dig deeper in a lot of those research projects that uh, like I was involved in, nothing gives you that full like IR exposure than actually being in the IR suite, being in that angio suite and that control room. So if you don't have that, if you don't have a good, strong uh, home program, I would consider doing probably at least two programs, right? And I always think that the first program, like, you know, you're trying to figure out your ways, uh, like, you know, the hospital, the new hospital, the faculty. So figuring out that first program may be a wash at times, but then that second program, you know, you may be able to have a better understanding of, um, of interventional radiology. But if you do, uh, so doing two in that, uh, in those cases, uh, I think, uh, is important, but then for programs that, or for medical uh, schools that have strong IR programs, I think doing just one is fine. Doing, again, doing more, like doing two max, I think it's great, especially if they're in different parts of the country. Let's say if you want to go on the West Coast, but for whatever, like you want to open that door up, right, to a different region, get a letter from there. And, you know, I are so well connected, but sometimes it's very pro, uh, like region specific that, especially like those big cities, they have those uh, citywide angio clubs and a lot of different you know meetings that they often go to. So I think that's imperative as well. I'll also say that uh, shameless plug for one of our IR episodes, we had Daryl Goldman on, man, a while ago, episode 134. But the title of it is How to Crush Your IR Rotation. And actually, Daryl gives some good advice about crushing your IR rotation, specifically in a way rotation. So I would say that there are pros and cons to doing away rotations. And they're very individual specific. 
Like, I mean, obviously, con, it's time away from home, family potentially, cost involved. Um, but sometimes those are like drops in the bucket for like, you know, investing in your career. So, but do you ever advise anyone, either personality type or IR skill set, like avoid IR away rotations? I don't think I have, Chris. Um, I think overall net positive, right? Yeah, it's a net positive, but I guess I've just been lucky with all of the mentees that have come. I've, <laughs> I think they've just been fantastic uh, in uh, like, you know, their interest and passion for IR. It, it's funny, we were just going through this, we were going through some literature in IR and one one paper uh, out of the University of Pennsylvania found that dedication to IR is one of the most important factors into matching into IR and ways to show that is like a weight rotation, like, you know, getting that longevity of involvement in SIR. So in a way, I guess if you can't do that, it's actually just more disadvantageous. Yeah. Okay. So switching gears from away rotations, and you've talked about it a couple of times, but can we talk about like the role of mentors? Like if, so if you don't, if you have a strong IR program at your home school, then it's kind of easy. That problem is kind of solved for you. But can you kind of talk about like from your own personal experience, like how mentors played a part in the application process, advice, whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So I am absolutely 100% a product of all my mentors. Like I am here because of them and every single faculty member has like subconsciously, you know, uh, imprinted a different part of interventional radiology uh, and how they view the field. Uh, and it's been so important in my personal growth that if you don't, that one thing I would advise students is that if you don't have a mentor, get one right now. And SIR can help connect you with mentors. Oh, absolutely. SIR, yeah. the RFS uh, section, they're all robust societies um, within our specialty. And we're so um, active, right? That's, it's, uh, you know, it's a no brainer. I think it's a free resource that students should um, just involve them in. My personal belief is that you should have four levels of mentorship. You should have one senior medical student, either at your own medical school and, or at another medical school. And that role would be like answering the specific program types of questions, like, you know, what's happening that a previous year, like, you know, how did the virtual process go? For me to talk about the virtual process, I can talk about it on the different end as like the evaluator side now. But again, I haven't gone through it, like the all the nooks and crannies of how to set up your internet and how like, you know, your environment should look. So that's one level. The second should be a resident because the resident can kind of tell you like the life and day of what's going to be expected for your next five or six years of residency, right? What is like being an interventional radiologist on the resident side like? You should have a young attending and then a senior attending. And by having those four, I feel like you'll get a appropriate insight of the field and then what it was like and where it's heading. Because a lot of the young attendings are just so ambitious and like starting different service lines and like i love it like we have uh, a lot of new attendings that kind of come uh, are at like our hospitals and i'm learning so much like now we started doing pain interventions didn't like cholangioscopy putting a shout out for john smiratopoulos because he's been fantastic but uh john smiratopoulos he was an intern when i was a fellow Oh, really? Oh, my God. Yeah. He was he, kind of the man then, I have to admit. I don't know. He had a glow about him. I was like, he was. I think he was just an intern thinking back. And I'd like, imagine like being a fellow and still thinking like, this intern's good. 
Well, yeah, that glow is still shining because John's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, such a good dude. <laughs> but yeah, so like you have all that, and then we have more senior faculty members that kind of show like you know the wisdom of the field, like you know where it was, what we've actually developed, why it's important for the things that we continue to do. So yeah, four levels of mentorship. Man, that's actually really, I, I haven't heard that before. That's a super smart way of going about it. I've, I've never heard someone talk about mentorship in that way. I'll just say like I've, I've both dabbled on having mentors and, and being on the mentor side. And man, like I, I never found my mentor relationships. They were like very rewarding for very specific pieces. But I mean, that was only because like at different points in my career, I needed different types of advice. And you really only get a piece of that. Like, so that's really smart layering, like the different levels of somebody's career in there. So I just wanted to drill down on that. One thing you did talk about, and I kind of wanted to go to, is the virtual process. I mean, I think there are some like standard policies or best practices now. Can you kind of talk about that just at least a little bit? Like if you're going virtual, some do's and don'ts about the virtual process and how to make like that process smooth and make it not a detractor, but like kind of an, like an advantage for you. Sure. So I can strictly talk about it from the evaluator side. I've got an opportunity to interview some uh, candidates. And so I can strictly talk about this from a, uh, a pure evaluate, uh, evaluator side. And I think it's important to have a really good environment um, set up at home. First, you know, little uh, basics, check your internet, check your surroundings, make sure you have no distractions similarly like you know make sure your tv isn't on like you're not your phone's not on loud little things like that make sure your value uh your environment is you know conducive to a proper i guess a virtual job interview right like as if you had designated 30 minutes of time to give your undivided maximum attention to somebody who's who's may or may not be doing the same for you but hopefully exactly yeah i got exactly so that's an uh an absolute deuce I personally love interacting with students that um, they sometimes have like different pieces of just things that are important to them. Cause like sometimes I'm not someone who's going to ask about like, you know, your board scores or a- anything that's on your application that's regarding like your, for like why you, you know, got an interview or so. Right. I'm more, what I really care about is like, you know, your hobbies, like, you know, how are you going to be a good co-resident to work with? Right. right? Yeah. 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 And knowing that you're human and knowing like, you know, things that you like to do outside of the workplace is personally very important to me. So like, you know, just kind of touching on uh, those topics. So if you don't have that in your application process, but let's say, hey, you have like, I don't know, a sailboat or something like a picture of that. I'm probably going to ask about it because I like sailing, like, you know, Um, (laughs) so little things like that. I'd probably say don'ts are... I mean, some of the things I mentioned, yeah, don't like have like your your, your ring can you on. Paint, can you paint a don't picture by like a horror story of like someone you were interviewing and just like stepped in it on every step of the way? It's oh, got to happen. It's got to happen. It's a yeah. numbers game, right? Sure. I, I, I can probably put a lot of different pictures okay. together. Okay, sure, sure. And this is where the even the virtual meet and greet is important. So residencies do virtual meet and greets now that are in lieu of like, you know, where you'd yeah, meet yeah, the yeah, residents yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, afterwards. Or the dinner the night before or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Right. Okay. So I had a few times uh, this happened where I had um, applicants, they were, they had their video on, but they clearly weren't attentive to like, you know, 
the actual uh, program that was going on, and they had like a te- they had something that they were watching, and I think someone was mentioning like I don't know it was like a serious conversation, and like you just see this person just laughing and like you know go back and forth, and I was like. There's no way that this person is laughing at this. Like, no way. Like, yeah, totally so inappropriate. That was one it. thing. I had another uh, applicant that I asked something specific about their hobby. And I, I think this would be like even in, in person that they said they did so and so. And like, you know, naturally I asked, oh, like, tell me a little bit specific about this. Right. And they're like, what? You're putting me on the spot. And I was like, isn't that what you do? It, it was that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to go into the specifics of it. Sure, sure, sure. But, Give it away. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just be attentive. You know, yeah. things happen. And like, again, there's um, your internet may not work for whatever reason. Don't freak out. Be be able to just communicate with uh, your uh, program coordinator, program director. Like if something happens, like I think most programs are understanding, right? What they won't be understanding is if you didn't create like, you know, a conducive environment and are unprofessional, but things along the way can happen. Don't freak out and yeah. it'll be all right. How about tire? Attire still go like shirt and tie, Absolutely. coat and tie. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, the full deal to the nines. This, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're, I guess they can only see you through <laughs> to, yeah. to like a level. So, I mean, we want to wear <laughs> under like, you know, uh, the pelvis. It doesn't really matter, but don't get up, I guess. Uh, yeah. If you, okay. if you end up doing it. that. But again, clean shaven. Like these are just like little things that, yes. you know, I believe that programs are often trying to do, they're trying to weed people out, right? Yep, what do exactly. you do when you have like a hundred people that, or 200 people? all fantastic. Yeah. Right. So now you're like, picking like little things to decipher and again like it's not always fair right and this is why it's like the luck of the draw sometimes it's, like it's completely unfair and capricious but i mean that's yeah. just like like exactly it's that's just how it has to be when you have to go through 200 people who are fantastically qualified to be at your program exactly yeah all right one thing i was going to talk about uh, this is always something i've given advice uh, about i give tips on like the three most common questions I feel like you get asked during an interview. Like, do you, and, and I'll tell you like what I, what I tell people and then I'm interested to hear what you say. But one of the things I tell people just to always prepare for is like two questions that are not a given, but a high, high percentage shot is like, tell me about yourself. Like that is one that just comes up over and over. And you should be able to dunk all over that statement. Like you should be able to like give a three minute, like best of highlights of how like you have come to this seat. And then um, the other one is, why do you want to be an IR or DR? You know, why do you want to be an IR? And that's like the million dollar question, which you should also have like, I mean, I don't want to tell people, you don't want to sound canned. I mean, you want to sound authentic, but you don't want to be thinking about it on the spot, right? Yeah. So, and, and the other thing I tell people is be ready to explain anything on your resume and not just like throw it away, be like, oh yeah, I did, I did some research and that, but that wasn't a big deal for me. But like be able to like explain it and then positive spin why did it bring you to IR? Like, you know, you may, like, there are a lot of people you read their resumes and people find IR in different routes. Like, you know, a lot of people want to go ortho or neurosurgery. And so that's where their, their research is, but like find a way to like explain that into how you found IR and why that's still going to make you a good fit for IR. You have any advice similarly about like killing the interview? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think you nailed both of those on the head that tell me about yourself. Everyone's going to ask you that. Yes. You know? It's like, just so common. 
it's so common and i think you don't have to have a perfectly scripted scripted way but like know at least a little bit about yourself right and one thing i like to tell my mentees is don't um don't have like a 15 minute like segment that you've already like rehearsed and like don't let it just be a huge monologue right this is supposed to be a discussion right i think it's great to like maybe like if you if you want to put ir in there in medicine that's fine I, I, like you know but i personally like to hear about like your hobbies like you know just like t today when you told me to tell me about yourself told you about my wife i went to bu i like you know normally back in the day i would like talk about i'm a huge new york giants fan and I still am though. Um, <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. Just confirming. Yeah, right. <laughs> but like, tell me uh, other things that, you know, that make you who you are. So definitely just like make sure that you craft that um, answer. I think additionally to why IR, which is very important. I've One of the questions I know a lot of faculty like to ask, which I personally was asked as well at many programs was, tell me about your favorite procedure. Oh, okay. Right? And or a procedure uh, that, that stood out to you, right? And it's hard to have a favorite procedure. I know. It's um, right? like, you know. like, it's like you're a med student. You may, I mean, like, in, and also like med student from maybe not a strong program or you have limited IR experience. Right. Um, that's a tough one, but a good yeah. one. It's a great, uh, it's a great way to, especially for me, I think it was fitting because I, I like came out with four away rotations at that point, right? Like I've seen, I don't have to have maybe a, favorite procedure but tell me the procedure that like you know sure. that you stood liked, out to you, you know yeah, that yeah. stood out to you and i think one thing that i really took away from that was talk about the patient which is like very important right now as well like you know and going forward is build a story for them talk about yeah. how the patient got on the table not the wire they used and what you did sure how right. did they show up on your ir table right who's consulted like you know what were, you don't have to go in the nitty gritty of like what their labs and everything was, of but course. paint that clinical picture and then tell me everything else, right? And that, rather than just the procedure itself. And I think that's important because it shows depth of your understanding of interventional mm -hmm. radiology. That not that we do PE thrombectomies, but we do patients, uh, we do this, this, this patient's like intermediate uh like you know this is their score like this is the well score this is yeah, how yeah. they showed up on our table and why we did what we did that's cool that's that's good advice yeah and then other than that i think know your hobbies like yeah I, like i alluded to if you're gonna put a hobby just make sure you know people will ask about it but yeah yeah i also like second the hobbies thing i think it does get a lot of play so don't just like throw it away on your application and also say like own your hobbies. Like um, I remember like this. I don't know why this was so like it just stood out to me. Not even a person that I interviewed, um, but it was an applicant who put fantasy football as his like hobby, which is you know like a lot of times you see movies, reading, whatever, and, and it's kind of like. But you know, fantasy football kind of stands out, and it stood out to the interviewer, and she was like, "Fantasy football, what's that about?" And she was gonna give him a hard time about it, and he like she talked about this like when we were choosing to rank them. She's like, "This guy was like." A crazy about fantasy football and like loved it and she was like and she just loved his enthusiasm for it and and she's like she's like i found it contagious she's like i like this person and like that's all she talked about and she's like high rank and i was like man to think like fantasy football is going to take this guy to the program to the promised land good room wow yeah yeah it's Look just it funny that the, the thing yeah. yeah it's just <laughs> funny that things that can end up real quick let me put you on the spot favorite procedure and i don't i don't mean from the patient side i mean the actual favorite procedure like what's the most fun one that you do at georgetown 
Oh, wow. That is putting me on the spot. But recently, it's been cholangioscopy, the gall, gallstone extraction. I think I just didn't know about... The first time I saw it was John doing this procedure. And for several factors, like him, you know, A, just being so passionate about this procedure uh, is very contagious. But like, and now I'm going to put a shameless plug uh, for cholangioscopy. It's so awesome for what we do, right? You you have you have all these patients that are non-surgical candidates, poor surgical candidates that you know otherwise have a tube uh, sticking out of their abdomen, right? And you know, oftentimes, like you know, they're not getting their cholecystectomy. They have this long-term tube uh, that's just there for a while. What we're offering them is hey, let's take out these stones, right? We have an access um, in that gallbladder. We're going to take that, uh, we're going to take those, we're going to look at those stones and we're going to either break them up or we're going to um, uh, just retrieve them. And then we're going to do a repeat cholangiogram in a couple of weeks and then we're going to take that tube out, right? You're literally offering a at times, a life-saving procedure too, um, but like you know, an alternative way to treat biliary disease, and it's just fantastic. Okay, I like that. Anything that I did not ask you that you wanted to talk talk about for the application process or the IRDR residency or anything along that, like this whole spectrum, like anything we didn't cover? Sure. So two things. Um, yeah. One thing would be so now step one is also uh, pass, pass fail, fail, right? And the same as uh, preclinical and clinical courses at, mo- at most institutions. So this is uh, a double-edged sword um, for students, um, especially as like, you know, it is creating a less stressful environment uh, to learn medicine, but then also disadvantageous for students who come from like, you know, lower tier medical st- students and rely on these scores to set them apart. And now what, like, you know, unanimously uh, from what I've heard from majority of the faculty is that step two has become the new quantitative new measure. One. Yeah, yeah, Right, yeah. metric to evaluate students. And it's probably like the ERAS gatekeeper. So I want to emphasize, like, do well in step two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also heard that students are struggling in step two because since step one is pass-fail, that foundation that, I see. Like, you know, you... Uh, work hard to build isn't like if you didn't study much for step one and then step two maybe a little bit harder and uh most students now realize that too uh so the score for step two like the, the average is continuing to go up just like have step one went mm-hmm. uh before yeah, and yeah. and then second the next thing i want to discuss uh was the importance of the resources out there there's been such a shift and change to the application uh, cycle that it's so important for everyone to be in tune with what's going on, right? You have different layers of uh, resources, um, such as medical school advising, um, different um, advising companies out there, and then mentorship. So everyone knowing you know, and understanding what's actually uh, the different changes that are going on and um, how to best strategize um, and navigate these changes is important, right? It's, there's no longer in-person interviews. Now there's virtual, uh, you know, uh, total virtual application process. You have signaling, you have stars, you have geographic preferences, right? Step one and two, uh, or step one is pass-fail. So there's all these changes and 
hence like you know ha- everyone being in that same page and not confusing medical students is super imperative of a kind of maintaining that interest in IR and you know having them you know match into interventional radiology i would also say I feel like as far as like the material side, I feel like SIR is actually getting this right. Like I I shouldn't say actually getting this right. I feel like SIR is doing a good job of, I don't know, like whenever I look on the website now to like learn about like the different IRDR, the different ways to get into IR, I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of putting out materials. Like I feel like that's probably a lot of heavy lifting from the, you know, the residents and fellows section. I think that there are a lot of good people who have been on there and are also on there now that are putting out really good material for us to look at. So Good absolutely. to see you guys. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I, I think that, that's actually the first thing I ask all, any student that asks, like, hey, I'm interested really? in IR. What should I do? Join RFS, join SIR. Like, that's the bare minimum. Yeah. Like, good solid advice. Like, 90% of things you'll find there and the 10% that I can help you with, I will, uh, I'm happy to do so. But 90% of the stuff is on there and they do get it right. You know, they, it's that page on the RFS website is just so heavily monitored and updated mm-hmm. it's insane that's so good it's great and at the end of the day uh, i understand matching into interventional radiology is hard but whatever's going to happen happens like i tell my newly minted wife uh live life as though the universe conspires in your favor whatever's going to happen will happen put your best foot forward and sure from the guy who's already from the guy who's already matched into the sexy yeah, right. dr integrated right okay <laughs> and just got married two weeks ago yeah Less right Th- things favorite. are bright for neil jane <laughs> um so let me um i just did want to I, I don't think it's out yet but your paper you have a paper uh that thank you for sending me a copy of but you guys are in the process of publishing or um publishing sure so first i'll talk about it's a recent letter to the editor for jvir uh, the impact of covid pandemic on the integrated IR match. And pretty much we talked about how, like, you know, the different virtual changes that's happened. Um, and the basis of this paper was through a, the Texas Star database, which is like a national online survey, uh, which asked specific questions. Um, and one thing that we learned was that we, that 70% of the applicants actually prefer the virtual process. Granted, it's hard to say that you know that you prefer um, the virtual over the online uh, over the in person because you may have not had the in person or you've not had that in person. So there's obviously a bias, but you know we evaluated um, one metric that we we evaluated was the cost uh, and the savings actually uh, between the applicants in the pre pandemic pool and then the post pandemic or the virtual pool, and there was a cost savings of about four thousand dollars. So. Pre-pandemic, it was roughly eight thousand dollars, and it was uh, the stratification was about like two thousand or so in the uh, for like the application, like submission. Then you had a couple uh, a grand or so in like away rotations, and then this four thousand for like traveling for interviews. And now that four thousand uh, approximately has decreased to about three hundred dollars, right? So, and then. But now, but now the applications, now students are applying to more applications. So yeah, of course, but it's not going to yep. offset it, you know? So sure. yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, eye-opening, uh, kind of, you know, paper because when I was thinking, me thinking about it from a residency standpoint, I was like, I want to meet people in person. Right. I was like, why would you not want to come to the city? Like, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting, I'm not getting that opportunity to meet all these fantastic res, uh, 
potential classmates. And I feel like it's also kind of unfair to them, but it looks like they prefer it, you know? We're actually in the works of doing a couple more papers. One of uh, uh, the effect of signaling um, and seeing how programs are, you know, about how programs specifically view signaling and how, how it worked out in the previous match cycle. And then we're reevaluating the Texas Star database for this upcoming or for the last cycle, because the one that we had was from the 2021, 2022. Uh, cool. paper. And whenever you are looking at the signaling, is it just going to be signaling within the IR specialty or also the specialties that... Just IR. Just IR? Cool. Yeah. That's good. Both of those are going into JVIR? Yep. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a couple... Two of these submissions will be for SIR, which will... For this upcoming SIR uh, annual conference. And then the last paper, I, I promise this is the last one, uh, <laughs> we started kind of just compiling a literature review of the IR residency and kind of talk about the wakes and like the different changes that have been going on. A lot of what we've discussed today, but it kind of puts all of these papers um, and resources that are already out there into one like systematic review per se um, that talks about like the savings uh, like you know this paper that just came out about the savings in IR talks about the different factors in IR that you know program directors and applicants um, consider so yeah stay tuned uh, we're still trying to find a appropriate home for it and okay. uh, stay tuned nice awesome Neil alright let me read my extra here alright to our audience, thank everyone for listening. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes this episode. Throw on any links that we can. Also, thank you to those in the Backtable team who are making those show notes. It's not me, so I appreciate the people that are working behind the scenes. Those show notes can be found at www.backtable.com. And remember, the show notes are where you can also find links to free CME. For others interested in supporting the show, like, subscribe, and share this podcast on social media or go old school and just tell somebody about it. Old-fashioned word of mouth is really helpful as we continue to build this community. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Backtable Podcast. Neil, thank you for coming on, man. Thanks so much, Chris. Happy to be here, and it was super fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 